All right, so Ephesians chapter 6. Um, <clears throat> these are verses that, um, if you're reading through the book, let's say you're reading through a Bible in the year plan, you get down to the last few verses of a letter like this, and you just kind of skip through it. I mean, you read them, but you're just like, okay, it's names and blessings, and hey, how you doing, and say hello to so-and-so, and, -so, and uh, don't forget to... Uh, do this, that, and the other thing, and see you later, sign off, and there you go, and then you just go on to the next letter. Um, but uh, we, are, we are going to look at these verses. We're not going to spend the whole time on them because um, you really, I, mean, I don't see any need more than to just kind of go through them a little bit, but uh, we'll, we'll look at these verses um, in two main parts, and then um, I'm going to conclude with some concluding thoughts on the book of Ephesians as we kind of wrap it up in a nice uh, little package. But uh, let's look at verses 21 through 24. Let me read them for you this morning. But that you also may know my affairs and how I am doing, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. So these are the last verses in Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. Um, as we, if you remember from when we began this book, uh, we looked at <coughs> the prevailing theories on uh, the book of Ephesians, whether it was written specifically to them or whether it was sort of like a, a chain letter or a letter that was sent to various places, uh, the same letter. Uh, the reason I say that is because if you remember, again, from the introduction, uh, in some early manuscripts where Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 1, to the saints who are in Ephesus, that space is blank. Uh, so some thought this might have been a letter that was sent to multiple churches, uh, the same letter to various churches in this region. Some think it was a letter, and I, this is where I fall, I think it was a letter that was not just specifically to the church in Ephesus, but Ephesus was sort of like the center point of uh, the churches in Asia, uh, particularly those churches that you see like in the book of uh, Revelation, the, that circuit that goes from uh, Ephesus all the way to uh, Laodicea. So perhaps it was sent to them with the intention that it would then be circulated to all those other churches as well. Um, but here you have at the end of this letter, Paul uh, is just bringing his closing words to them. He is, he is telling them that I'm going to send Tychicus to you so you can know how I'm doing. So Paul sends word from Rome. That's the first point. And then he sends his blessings to them as well in verses 23 and 24 as he sends blessings to Ephesus. So he sends word from Rome and blessings from Ephesus. Um, last time, of course, we looked at the armor of God. Uh, that was the last main meaty section of this letter where Paul uh, talks about our spiritual warfare. 
and really he's more focusing on this spiritual equipment that is given to us so that we can engage in this spiritual warfare. So he talks about the whole armor of God. He talks about what our battle is. Our battle is against uh, the spiritual forces in this world. We do not wrestle or struggle or fight against flesh and blood. Uh, so we are, as a church, the church of Jesus Christ is not to go out into the world like the armies of Israel conquering the Canaanites. Okay, we're not out there with sword and shield literally in hand to conquer nations and to establish a holy land. We are the church of Jesus Christ and we go out with the sword of the spirit, with the armor of God, and we combat arguments and lies and deceptions in the world and the flesh and the devil with the equipment that the Lord has given us for the battle. If you remember, I spent a little bit of time in 2 Corinthians 4, where Paul there talks about how the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the eyes of those who are in the world to keep them and prevent them from seeing the glorious light of gospel truth. So we go forth, and Paul says, I go forth and I proclaim this message to them so that God will use that message to open their eyes. That is the warfare uh, we are engaged in. So Paul... Um, closes this letter, his last main point of teaching is to encourage the believers in Ephesus and, and all who read this letter to encourage them in their spiritual warfare, to, to stand firm, to stand in the equipment that God has given them. So again, then he just finishes, and this is, uh, you know, I mean, as far as closing sections to a letter goes, I mean, Romans has got the longest one. He just is practically an entire chapter with a bunch of names that you've never heard of before, and, and you know, some names that are, uh, you know, you see in other portions of scripture. Here, it's a pretty basic conclusion. And remember, again, Paul is writing from a Roman prison. He is writing from house arrest in Rome, so he is sending somebody. He can't go himself, so he is sending somebody to bring news of his condition. So these are Paul's final words of encouragement and hope uh, to the Ephesian church. So first, again, let's look at verses 21-22, where Paul here sends word from Rome. So as he brings this letter to a close, he's concerned that those to whom he is writing might be worried about his condition. Again, under house arrest. How's Paul doing? Is, you know, is he being provided for? Because that's, you know, the Romans weren't going to feed you. They weren't going to take care of you. They weren't going to make sure you got out and, and got some exercise in the prison courtyard. It was up to your friends and your family members to support you when you were under house arrest. So they're concerned about him. They're concerned about him. So Paul wants to make sure that he lets them know. And, and part of the reason why they were concerned for him is Paul spent a lot of time in Ephesus. He spent a lot of time in Ephesus. You, we looked at this earlier on, again, at the beginning of Ephesians. We looked at Acts chapter 19. If you want, you can refresh your memory later. But Acts chapter 19 uh, highlights and details Paul's uh, missionary efforts in Ephesus, how he went there, how he ministered there, how there was a riot there because of the, the silversmiths who did not like the fact that uh, they were losing business because of the gospel proclamation. And then as he leaves and comes back, as he's returning back to Antioch, he 
wants to stop at Ephesus, but he doesn't go into the city. He goes to a nearby city called Miletus, and he calls for the Ephesian elders, and they come out to him, and he gives them some words of encouragement, and he says there that I spent three years there with you. So Paul was in Ephesus three whole years, right? You know, you think of some of the other places that Paul's been to. You think of a place like Thessalonica, where he was there probably three weeks, and then he was kicked out. He was chased out of town. Here he spends three whole years ministering to the saints in Ephesus and the surrounding area. So, yeah, they were probably very anxious to find out about what's going on with Paul. How are you doing, Paul? We haven't heard from you. We hope you're doing well. Send us some news. How can we help? So Paul informs him he, in the letter, and you're like, well, how do they know this? Well, the letter would have been delivered probably by Tychicus. He's like, here I am. I bring word from Paul, and I'm the one who was given this letter uh, to send to you. So he informs them that I'm sending Tychicus to you. Tychicus would have been an Asiatic Christian. So someone from this Asia Minor area, he would have been converted in one of, perhaps in, while Paul was ministering to, in Ephesus or some of the other cities. Uh, Tychicus was one of these converts. His name literally, literally means faithful. Faithful. Uh, I don't know if that has any significance in, the, in this idea, but Paul here is sending this faithful brother he calls him a faithful minister in the Lord, a beloved brother. So, uh, again, these are uh, words of endearment, a, a beloved brother. So he recognizes Tychicus as someone who is now part of the family of Christ, someone who has been called out of darkness into his marvelous light, and now he, is, he calls him brother, right? That's a, a, you know, a term of endearment. We, we use that a lot in Christian circles, and sometimes maybe that word loses some of its luster because we use it so often. But Paul here says that Tychicus, my dear friend, who is with me here in this Roman prison, not he's not under imprisonment, but he's there ministering to Paul, he says he's a dear brother. He's a beloved brother. He has helped me so much. He's been with me on, on some of my journeys. If you want to know more about Tychicus, um, in Acts chapter 20, uh, verse 4. Paul there, as he journeys to Greece, uh, he mentions uh, some people that were accompanying him to Asia. He, mentioned, he calls out a few names. A, a, a guy named Sopater of Berea. So that's uh, north of, of, of Greece. And he says he accompanied him to Asia. Also Aristarchus, the Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby, that would be more in Central Asia there. And then Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. So here you have these uh, Asiatic Christians. Uh, when I say Asia, again, don't think like China, okay? <laughs> think Asia Minor, think you know, that area that would have been north of Palestine. So here, Tychicus is one of his traveling companions. He mentions him later on in the book of Colossians, which is believed to have been written around the same time as Ephesians. They, they, they share a lot of themes together. And in Colossians chapter 4, verse 7, Again, here, as he's closing the letter, Paul says, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. So, 
if these letters were written in short proximity to one another, you can see that he probably gave both of these letters to Tychicus and said, take this one to Colossae, take this one to Ephesus, let them know what's going on. And again, he refers to him in the same language here, beloved brother, faithful minister. He mentions him again in 2 Timothy uh, 4, verse 12, and in Titus 3, verse 12. So this individual... Now, again, 2 Timothy and Titus, those would have been written during a later imprisonment. In fact, 2 Timothy would have been Paul's last letter uh, chronologically that was written. So Tychicus is a close companion. Maybe not at the level of Timothy, but he's a close companion, a beloved brother, someone who has ministered um, uh, much to Paul. And he calls him here a beloved brother brother, someone who is very dear to me, someone who's also a faithful minister, a, a diakonos, uh, uh, you could say deacon, but he's referring here just someone who ministers. He is a minister in the Lord, uh, and he's going to come, and he's going to let you know. He is sent to bring information. He's also sent to bring comfort. Verse 22, whom I've sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs, and that he may comfort your hearts that were there to encourage, to console, to comfort, to come alongside you and to bring words of encouragement from Paul, not just in this letter, but perhaps actual audible words to them as well. You think of 2 Corinthians where Paul there talks about the comfort. He says, I write to comfort you with the comfort that I've been comforted. And then, you know, this idea is we've received comfort from the Lord. And as we have received comfort from the Lord in our afflictions, then we are to go forth and comfort others in their afflictions as well. So Tychicus, this dear, beloved brother in the Lord, this faithful minister in the Lord who is coming to bring news to Paul, is also coming to bring comfort to their hearts, to encourage them in their faith, to let them know of what's going on with Paul in Rome, and also to bring a word of encouragement and consolation to them. Now, as we look at, you know, just consider these two verses, I said there's, I'm not going to say a terrible amount on these things, but as we look at these Verses we have to understand, right? Ephesians, Philippians, Romans, these are letters. These are letters, okay? We look at them and we, you know, we read through Ephesians and we think of, oh, the armor of God, or, oh, you know, this idea of being chosen and redeemed and sealed by the Spirit, or how we have been made alive in Christ, and we, we glean all these deep theological truths from these letters, and we're like, oh, what a, what a great theological masterpiece the book of Ephesians is, and it is. It is a theological masterpiece. But it's a letter. <laughs> it is a letter. This is not a theological treatise. Paul is not writing a systematic theology and then tacking on, like you know, you see in a lot of books. You know, the I'm, I, I dedicate this book to my beloved wife and my children who inspired me greatly. No, this is a letter. Paul is writing with a purpose in mind. He is writing with a specific purpose in mind. In this case, to remind the Ephesian believers about the glory of God or the glory of Christ in the life of the church. How the church is this, this beloved institution that, that God has called forth, that is the bride of Christ, that is the temple of the Lord, and how it is through the church that this message, this mystery is now going forth into the world. And he's writing to encourage them, and at the end he's just sending his 
greetings. Like, this is a letter, not a theological treatise. And, and these conclusions here, particularly what we see here, give us a glimpse into the life of the church that Paul is talking about here. These are real people in a real historical situation, in a real setting in the first century A.D., in the, somewhere in the middle of the first century A.D. Here what you see is what we call the communion of the saints. Right? If we were to write a letter to somebody and, and to another church, say, and we might say, and, you know, and, you know, Jerry sends greetings, and Opal sends greetings, and we're like, well, who are these people? You know, hundreds of years later, people are going to read this letter, like, who are these people? Who's Jerry? Who's Opal? Why should I care? Well, because they were Christians alive at the time when that letter was written, and they're dear, beloved brothers and sisters in the Lord. They are people whom Paul knew and loved. And he's writing to people whom he knew and he loved. The communion of the saints in action. Doctrine is important. And all the truths that we've learned in Ephesians and the other letters we've looked at and the other books of the Bible we've looked at, doctrine is important. It is important to know the truth. It is important to know what you believe and why you believe it. It is vitally important. I will never downplay the importance of doctrine. But we need to understand that this is never divorced from the life of the church. It's not just to know stuff. It is to know stuff in order to then engage in the communion of the saints, in order to engage in the work of the kingdom, in order to engage in the life of the church. Never divorced from the life of the church as the body of Christ. So that's the first point. Second point, Paul sends blessings now to Ephesus in verses 23 and 24. As he does in pretty much all of his letters, Paul at the end sends a benedictory word. So verse 23, peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. So first he wishes upon them peace. Peace, again, that word in the Greek, irene, which is often used to translate the word in Hebrew, shalom, uh, which really means more than just peace. Its primary meaning is peace, but shalom means sort of a, an idea of wholeness, of, of well-being, of, of uh, all kinds of good things here. And, and he is wishing peace to them, right? But this is not just the peace, you know, if we've looked at this in other contexts, this is not the peace of the world, right? Which is essentially, you know, as long as no one is yelling at me, I'm at peace, right? <laughs> you know, as long as my wife is not yelling at me, which she doesn't, she doesn't yell at me, not anymore. <laughs> There's peace at home, right? <laughs> this is not the absence of conflict, right? That's not the kind of peace we're talking about. We're talking about the idea of reconciliation between God and man, reconciliation between man and man. And that's what we see. That's one of the things that Paul talks about in this letter uh, earlier on in chapter 2, where he says in verses, uh, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, where we have been made alive together in Christ. In other words, Christ has redeemed us, and because Christ has redeemed us, we have peace with God. 
Why? Because the debt has been paid and the punishment has been poured out on his son and now there is peace because the wrath has been exhausted upon his son Jesus Christ. We have been redeemed by his blood. We now have the forgiveness of our sins. Peace. God has now made us alive in, in, together in Christ. Those who were enemies, those who walked in deadness, who were in their sins and trespasses, God has now brought together because of his great love, verse 4 of chapter 2, with which he loved us, and raised us up together and seated us together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It is by grace we've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So we have peace. So we can say peace to the brothers, peace to you, to the brethren, because Christ has established that peace. Christ is our peace. He is the Prince of Peace. And we also have peace with one another. That's verses 14 through 18 in chapter 2. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. We have peace not only with God, we have peace with one another, because in Christ, all those things that divide us have been torn down. They have been made low. They have been destroyed. They have been demolished. They have been abolished, to use Paul's word here. So we have peace, and this is the peace that he's referring to, is, at least in that section of uh, Ephesians, is the peace between Jew and Gentile, how he has brought the two together by abolishing what had separated them. But it is also peace that we have with um, the world, in a sense. It is, again, it is through Christ it is not a, a superficial peace in the fact that, well, because they're not persecuting us, we have peace. No, they have peace as long as we are in Christ. So this peace to the brothers, peace again between God and man, and between man and man, which is through Christ Jesus. Then he wishes upon them love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because they are the source of love, right? God is love. God is love, and we have love through that because we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. We have love, and so love is, the, they are the source of love, and they are the ground of faith, right? It's not, we are not saved by our faith in itself, right? We are saved because our faith is placed in something, uh, it is the, the, the object of our faith that saves us. It is, we're not saved by faith. We're saved by faith in Christ, right? It is, uh, it is the, the fact that our faith rests upon the foundation of what Christ has done. So love and faith from the Father and the Son, and then he wishes upon them grace. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's unmerited favor. Perhaps the best word in the Hebrew to uh, look at that would be the word hesed, which is God's love for you, God's covenant love for you, God's kindness toward you, God's faithfulness toward you, God's uh, covenant love toward you. These are, this is all unmerited, right? This is all unmerited. God 
chose to place his love upon you. God chose to show you grace. If it were merited, it wouldn't be grace. But because it is unmerited, it is a gracious gift. So grace he wishes upon them. Grace, and it's not just to all, but all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> love our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's that very important um, uh, clarification there, right? That very important uh, uh, emphasis that it is grace be to all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace comes upon those who love his Son, right? God sheds his love and his grace upon those who love his Son, Jesus Christ. Love me, love my Son. You can't say you love God if you do not love his Son, Jesus Christ. That's, that's the whole you know, point of John's gospel in a lot of ways is you know, they say they love God and yet they, you know, they, they treat his son poorly. They want to crucify his son. It's like if you love the Father, you will love the one whom he has sent into the world, which is me, Jesus would say. So again, peace, love, faith, grace, all from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Church of Jesus Christ is a community of people established by peace, grounded on grace, and lives in an atmosphere of love and faith, all through the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is a Trinitarian thing. It is a Trinitarian thing. So there, I mean, that's it for the, at least the passages, <laughs> the verses before us. This, this, would be a, this is going to probably be a fairly shorter uh, lesson. Um, but now, what are, we, what are we to make of this letter? Because I want to conclude by kind of wrapping this up. Um, because we spent, by my count, this is 23 lessons in Ephesians. So close to half a year if you count breaks and, and things. We've been in it close to half a year. Um, so it's been a while since we looked at the very early chapters, uh, but this is this is this is a great uh, book. Uh, and again, I, I titled the series "The Glory of Christ in the Life of the Church," and I think that's exactly what you see in these six chapters in 155 verses. Yes, I counted the verses. I just added the totals at the end of each chapter. Okay. 155 verses, if you want to check my math. Six chapters, 155 verses. Um, in a lot of ways, this book uh, feels like a kind of a condensed version of Romans um, in, in, in the sense that uh, a lot of the other letters seem to be dealing with uh, more pressing issues in the church. We've looked at so far, we've looked at, uh, before this, we've looked at 1 Corinthians and Galatians, both of which were addressed to specific churches to deal with issues going on in those churches. Uh, Ephesians is not that kind of a letter. It's a, again, it's a letter, but it's not that kind of a letter. It's not coming out as a polemic against some problem in the church. It's not coming out against some bad theology in the church. It is more to give a sweeping overview of what this entity called the church is and how Christ is glorified in the church, how the triune God is glorified in the church. And it begins, as if you remember, in chapter 1, we see the glory of Christ in the life of the church at the very beginning. 
It, it, it's seen in eternity past in chapter 1 as we see that we are chosen of the Father when? Before the foundation of the world, verse 4, chapter 1. Chosen by God, elected, if you will, called out, chosen to be a bride for his son before the foundation of the world, before there was any creation, before there was a world to speak of, which kind of sounds weird to say before because you're talking about before there was even time. Uh, but that's, again, the limitation of human language. Uh, this is eternity past. This is in the eternal mind and plan of God was to choose a bride for his son. So we see the glory of Christ in the life of the church as we were chosen to be in him, united to Christ, chosen to be uh, together with him by the Father. It is seen as we were redeemed by the Son who comes and sheds his blood for us, who comes and, and lives according to the law of God and sheds his blood for us and dies on the cross to secure for us redemption, to buy us out of slavery, as Hosea did to Gomer. He redeems her, right? He redeems her out of slavery, out of the slave market, while the Son comes and redeems us. But it's not with 30 shekels of silver and gold as Hosea did. It's with his precious blood that he redeems us. As Peter says, not with gold or silver or precious stones, but with his precious blood, he has redeemed us. So he buys us back. He pays the price, if you will, to rescue us. And again, according to the riches of his grace. Then we are sealed. So if you want to continue the, the, the bridal imagery, right? The Holy Spirit then is the engagement ring. It is the promise that we will be with him and he will be with us for all time, for all eternity. So we are sealed. He has set his seal upon us. He has marked us as his. We are preserved by the Spirit who is the guarantee. He is the down payment for the inheritance that will be ours. We see the glory of Christ in the life of the church in chapter 2 as what was in eternity past is now brought and kind of described a little bit in, in space and time, as I like to call it here, as the, now the Spirit takes the finished work of Christ and applies it to all those whom the Father has chosen. So how, how, do we, how do we come in Christ? Are we born that way? No, we are made alive, so we're born again. It's not that you're born a Christian, you're born again to be a Christian. You are made alive together with Christ. Why? Because you were born in sins and trespasses because of what our first father, Adam, has done. We were dead. We are made alive. How is that done? By the work of the Spirit. To borrow the language from John chapter 3, we are born again. We are born from above. We are regenerated. So God takes those who are dead and makes them alive. It's not, not physically dead, spiritually dead. We are spiritually dead. We are made spiritually alive in Christ by God, as chapter 2, verse 4 says, who is rich in mercy, who has a great love with which he loved us. How do we see that great love? Well, he sent his son. He chose us in eternity past. That's why we know he has a great love for us. He makes us alive together with. 
and seats us together with and raises us up together with. Again, this, this is the idea of, you know, it, it's, a, it's a synergy. Well, it's a, it, and I don't mean synergy. It, it, it's a together with. It is a, it, it, all these words, if you remember when we looked at this before, have a little prefix on them that means together. Uh, so it's, we are raised, it's that Christ is ascended to heaven and we are together with him. He is seated at the right hand and we are together with him. He is raised from the dead and we are made alive together with him. All of this is done for Christ. All of this is done to, to, to describe and to show the glory of Christ in the life of the church. We see the glory of Christ in the life of the church as we are then uh, joined together with one another into one new man. We looked at this just a little bit ago, but we are made together, brought together as one new man in Christ. So this, this concept of the church is not something that is centered upon a nation or an ethnicity or a race, if you want to use that word. It is one that is uh, made up of all tribes and tongues and nations in the world, Jew and Gentile. And while there was separation, right, if you look at chapter 2, verses 11 and following, he is now speaking to sort of the Gentile audience in his, in his readership here. He says, remember what you were how you were alienated, how you were separated from the promises of God, how, how these things were foreign to you. But now, in verse 14, the one who is our peace has made both, Jew and Gentile, one by breaking down the wall. He makes one new man, verse 15, from the two, thus making peace. So we are united together. Again, the church is a multinational organization that unites people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. This is why it irks me. <laughs> it irks me when I hear, you know, the things like, you know, Christian nationalism and make America Christian again and all these things. It's like, do, do, I, want, do I want the United States to to be more, yes. Who doesn't want this country to be more Christian, right? It's bigger than this. It is bigger than the United States of America, right? It, it, you know, it, the, the church was not meant to be centered in a particular country for a particular nationality. The Church of Jesus Christ has existed in every country, in every form of government, in every, under every form of totalitarianism or whatever kind of government you want to look at has existed for, in all of these things. And it has reached out to all kinds of people. That's the point. That's the point. It is one new man out of the two. It is seen as we are now built up. The glory of Christ in the life of the church is seen as we are assembled, if you will, as a temple on a foundation. That's verses 19 through 22 of chapter 2. We are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. We are raised up as a household to God, a holy temple in the Lord, verse 21. When we get to 1 Peter, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter in a few weeks. He uses the idea, the same idea, and he says that we are living stones, 
being built and stacked. So, you know, if you're a fan of the Pink Floyd song, you know, another brick in the wall, well, we are another spiritual stone in the house of the Lord being built up into a temple. So, and what's the idea of the temple? Well, the temple is a picture of where God dwells. God dwells in his church. How do we know that? Because we have the Holy Spirit among us who dwells, not just in each and every one of us. Paul uses this imagery in 1 Corinthians where each of us are temples and that collectively we are the temple because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. We are the dwelling place of God in a sense. We see the glory of Christ in the life of the church as this mystery is revealed. Paul is the, the revealer of this mystery. He is the steward who has been given this great revelation to make known the mystery that has been hidden in ages past. So these are verses three through six, uh, chapter three, verses one through six. He says, the mystery is this, that Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Hidden in ages past. Gentile inclusion in the church was something that was not unknown, but it was hidden. It was mentioned because, remember, the promise to Abraham is that he would be a blessing to the nations. The, 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 the Israel was to be a light to the nations. Uh, they were to, uh, you, you could even become a member of the nation of Israel if you were, as a Gentile convert, if you were to undergo circumcision and, and be brought into the people. The, the laws of the nation were meant to, to give mercy and show grace toward the widow, the orphan, and the stranger amongst them. This is a mystery that was hidden in ages past and now has been revealed to Paul and to the other apostles that this is now an expansion, if you will, as the, the, the people of God add on and bring on these people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And then as we get out of the, you know, the more theological section and we look at the practical section, you see the, the glory of Christ in the life of the churches. Now we are called to walk worthy of this calling that we've received. So we are chosen in eternity past. We are made alive in space and time. We are being built together into a holy temple. How ought we to live? We are to live by walking worthy, by walking in a manner that is fitting to the calling we've received. And he expands on that in chapters 4 and 5. Well, what does that look like? Well, it's a, it a walk of unity. It is a walk in newness as we put off the old man, put on the new man. It is a walk in love as we imitate uh, God as dear children. It is a walk in the light as we put off the deeds of darkness. It is a walk in wisdom as we are filled with God's spirit. So you see all of these things here. These are all uh, aspects of the worthy walk. Uh, a Christian who is called into this world, you're not, again, you're not saved by your works, but you're saved unto good works. And we show that by walking worthy. We show that by walking worthy. The glory of Christ is seen in the life of the church through household relationships, husbands and wives, parents and children, servants and masters. How does this look? Well, 
Wives submit to their husbands. Husbands love their wives. Children obey their parents. Parents nurture their children. Servants obey their masters. Masters treat their servants with sincerity and with uh, not harming them, not abusing them. You see this in a well-ordered household, if you will. And it's particularly seen in this great mystery that we saw at the end of chapter 5 about Christ and his church. How this relationship between husband and wife is really something that points to the greater reality of Christ with his church. Why is it important to have a well-ordered marriage? Because every Christian marriage, in a way, points to the relationship between Christ and his church. You're like, well, I'm not pointing very well. That's okay. <laughs> you know, the, it's not that we are perfect pointers of this, <laughs> right? But it's that we, we strive to, to be better in these things. And then finally, the glory of Christ is seen in the life of the church as we engage in the warfare that we've been called to. Again, as we mentioned earlier, not a warfare against flesh and blood, but a spiritual warfare, standing firm in the power of the might of God in the equipment that he provides. So again, Ephesians is a book I think that Christians need to read and study and know well. There are many, many foundational truths here. Uh, things that are, uh, you don't really find fleshed out as much as you do in the book of Ephesians. Um, it's a small book, but it's a, it's a powerful book and it's got a lot of stuff in it. Christ is exalted in this book. The nature of the church as both a temple and a bride are so wonderfully taught in this book. Now our temptation is, okay, I've read through Ephesians, let's move on to the next thing. What's the next thing? You know, that's, you know, you know what's the next new thing? Well, okay, we're talking the Bible, so you're not going to get another new thing. You'll just get something you may not have heard from me before. But, uh, you know, my goal isn't to teach you something new. My goal is to teach you the Bible. And if it comes across as new, well, praise the Lord. But... Also, if it comes across as new, maybe I need to check and make sure I'm not off the rails or something. But, you know, let's not just rush off of Ephesians so quickly. I, I would encourage you, return to this book. Come back to this book often. Study this book in your own time. Um, meditate on these truths. I hope as we finish this study that you have a better understanding of the church, past, present, and future. Uh, church is not something that began just in the book of Acts. It is something that has started long before. It is the mystery, as we saw in this book. But above all, do not forget one of the core gospel truths in this book that you see in verse, verses 8, 9, and 10 of chapter 2. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the gospel core, gospel truth of this book, that we are saved by grace through faith. Saved by grace through faith. It is God's grace. It is the foundation of our salvation. It is received through the instrumentality of faith. And it is results in the good works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Those works do not earn our salvation. Those works are part of the worthy walk that is being worked out of us 
as God's Spirit is working in us. So that's Ephesians. I'll stop here. We've got plenty of time left at the end here. Um, next week, Lord willing, um, I like Lyndon's way of talking about it. If, if the Lord doesn't call us home, 